So I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles. You thought I was going to say Haggai, didn't you? 2 Chronicles this morning is where we are. I'm going to be thinking. I'm going to read the text in a little bit, but I wanted to make sure you got to 2 Chronicles. It's about in the middle of a Bible. Um, It's in the history section of the Bible. And I want to pray. Lord, I ask that you would give grace, you give wisdom, and give us ears to hear this morning. Much of our lack of spirituality or our decline is directly contributed to the pride that so easily creeps into our hearts. And I pray that you would deliver us from that root, that root that causes bitterness and causes alienation from you and also causes alienation from one another. I ask, Lord, that you would grant us forgiveness deliverance from that wickedness of self-assertive pride. And Lord, grant us wisdom to see, humility to hear. In your name we pray, amen. This week I came across a message that was written in 1768, which is a long time ago. It was preached in New Haven, Connecticut, and it was preached... Uh, with passion and fire, and uh, now I wasn't there, I'm, I'm reading it, I'm, I'm assuming it did, because as I listen to these words, I can't help but imagine anything otherwise, and I hope that uh, listen carefully just to a few of these words, uh, they're very, I think, particularly moving. He says, it is only at peculiar times that Christ is present with his saints as a bridegroom in this world. And that he is so present with them at some times, I may appeal both the Holy Scripture and to the experience of holy men in all ages. How has it been for you, maybe? Has not the Lord Jesus Christ at times been present with you by a clear manifestation of his glory and love? Have you not at times beheld His glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth? Has He not at times shed shed abroad His love in your hearts? Hear the words of the bride in Song of Solomon. As the apple tree among the trees of the wood, so is my beloved among the sons. I sat down under His shadow with great delight, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. Stay me with flagons, comfort me with apples, for I am sick with love. He goes on, I dare say maybe your hearts, as it were, echo these things, and that you know them to be true from your own experience. 
That's amazing. The, the preacher who preached these words was only 23 years old, and he was a single man. And yet he could appreciate the beauty of love that exists within a marriage relationship and equate that with a personal love and experience of joy in the presence of the Holy Spirit in his heart and life. I read those words and I thought to myself, boy, I would like to experience that kind of, of closeness and intimacy with the Lord. There have been times where I have experienced that, but why is it that we don't experience that more? Tells me that even if a 23-year-old single man can understand the joy that exists, it tells me that the joy which exists and arises within the context of, of marital love is describing an intense joy that can be accessible to any person, whether or not they're married or not. They can experience and understand relationally with God, who by faith we are, if you will, married to Christ. We have that relationship. Now, thinking about earthly marriages, I, a healthy marriage will go through seasons, won't it? I mean, there will be an ebb and flow within a marriage, but it always if healthy, is going to return to a settled but maybe a more a deeper degree of happiness. Solomon also wrote, everything, for everything there is a season, a time for every matter under heaven. So ebb and flow, it's, it's natural. These things are natural, but decline in marriage is not, and neither is it with God. Decline in our relationship with God is not how it ought to be. Why do nations, why, why do societies and businesses and communities and churches and families experience decline? How does that occur? I mean, you think about it, no nation in the history of mankind has ever been in a state of perpetual zenith. All businesses rise and fall, don't they? Eventually, something is going to overtake Amazon. Did I hear an amen? <laughs> Thriving suburban communities shift over time, and then they become the urban centers that, that people tried to get away from. Families who once were pillars in communities become inconsequential. In fact, even some become degenerate over time. The history of the world is filled with decline. Decline is inevitable, but decline is possible, it, it can be overcome. In fact, like marriage or a relationship with the Lord, it can be renewed. I think most of us can visualize happiness, but we often forget how to get back to it. We've had experiences. I mean, you think about some of the most enjoyable experiences in your life and finding happiness Maybe it was a time that you paid off your mortgage. Wasn't that a happy day for some? I'm still waiting for that to take place. Maybe it was the day you were married. It was surreal. The day you got your first car. Definitely not the day you got your first scratch. I won't go there. Or sitting on the lake, maybe, in the late summer and 
hearing the loons calling in the distance. Those are happy moments. Think about the moment in which you first believed the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you knew that your heart had been liberated, freed. Why can't we experience a perpetual apex of happiness? Now, the euphoria of those moments is real, and it is penetrating, it's deep, and it's not an illusion. But retaining those deep joys in our lives, it often feels like trying to hold water in your hands. It just, it just slips away. What causes the decline? What triggers renewal? I beg your permission not to go to the book of Haggai for a moment because I want you to be able to appreciate the renewal that's occurring in the book of Haggai when we get there next Sunday. We need to see some of the decline and we need to see some of the reasons for the decline and then also the triggers that, that bring renewal. And this, I hope, will be helpful for all who, who hear this morning and I want us to consider how essential this is for all of us. What causes spiritual decline and what are the remedies which bring renewal? And so, to do this, we're going to take a lightning fast tour through Judah's history. Judah's history. Um, the books of Samuel and the books of Kings are actually uh, written from the perspective of decline and they don't actually reach the other side of the exile and return. The book of Chronicles, first and second, two parts of it, are written more from the standpoint of the other side of exile, in which the temple is going to be rebuilt, and they're reflecting on the past events that, and the, some of the things that caused decline, and what is it that is necessary for renewal to occur. And these are universal truths that we can appreciate as we live underneath of the rule of Christ. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. There is consistency in this pattern, which is accessible for us, and I want us to see some of these truths. And so, I know I had you turn to uh, Second Chronicles, and so uh, let's actually just read a couple of the verses at the end of the book, chapter 36, verse 22, verse 22. It says, now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the, what we heard in our scripture reading this morning, the Lord stirred up the spirit of, the, of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. And so there's a backward reflection over some of the things that had caused decline, but it's written now from a hopeful perspective. And in, in a, almost a little bit of a warning not to repeat some of these tragic moments that led to decline. So now we're just going to think a little bit now about the, the messaging of 
Second and First Chronicles. Now, this is probably the fastest tour you're ever going to experience of a Bible book, okay? Are you ready? You hang on, okay? First book, First Chronicles, begins with nine chapters of genealogy. Do you like reading genealogy? No, okay? It's all right. We can say that out loud. But those nine chapters are written from the perspective of those who are returning from exile. Then the writer, after those nine chapters, circles around and reconsiders the significance of David. David, who went in and conquered the Jebusite city called Jebus, he renamed it, he called it Jerusalem, and from there, there's discussion about the loyalty of men who stayed with him, and then the focus moves towards the Ark of the Covenant, the sacred peace and the central way of worshiping God and looking at the Ark. The ark is moved into Jerusalem. There's some complications along the way. But David's desire is that he would build a house, a temple for the Lord. And in building this temple, uh, Nathan the prophet says to David, go for it. You've got God on your side. God would be absolutely pleased with your heart. Go for it. But then Nathan has to go back and bring a message from the Lord saying, hold your horses. And yet, God's delighted with David's impetus and desire to build a house for God. But what's remarkable in this, this moment of like pause and wait, God himself promises to David that he will build him a house. Wait a second. David wants to build God a house. But David is receiving a house that will last forever. And what you see in this is that you can't outgive God. What you see in this is God outpouring grace upon grace upon grace. A heart that is, that is in faith calling out to God is going to be the recipient of grace upon grace upon grace. Beautiful exchange that occurs in this prayer. And of course, we also anticipate the coming Messiah, Lord Jesus Christ, the descendant of David, who comes as his son, who will be a perpetual king. And so the rest of First Chronicles organizes David's, you know, he's preparing lumber and flocks and gems, and he's, he's gathering and organizing uh, musicians and the priesthood, and so that's First Chronicles. Pretty quick, right? Well, I don't know. From my perspective, that was quick. Now, Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles begins with the assumption that we're building the temple, and the temple is going to be built. Solomon prays a prayer of dedication. It's a long prayer, but in it, you can start to see a pattern, a pattern of how grace is received. Humility is a, is a foundation stone for grace and mercy. Now, if you're in Chronicles, you can look there, or you can also look on the wall with me at, at uh, chapter 6, verse 14 and 18, and we read these words, 
in Solomon's prayer. He says, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven or on earth, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart, who have kept with your servant David, my father, what you declared to him. But God will indeed dwell with man on earth. Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. <laughs> and through the remainder of the prayer, there's just this overwhelming awareness that, that God cannot be contained. How is it possible that he would even condescend to, to look on me? Solomon calls upon God through the rest of his prayer to be responsive, to be responsive to sinners who will sin, responsive to sinners who will be filled with pride. And this request is actually what brings about renewal. At the end of his prayer, fire comes down from heaven consumes the offering, and then the glory of the Lord fills the temple dramatically. <laughs> and later, in chapter 7, we come to a really pivotal moment that kind of frames the rest of the book of Second Corinthians, Second Chronicles. The Lord comes to Solomon, and in a dream, he hears these words... In 2 Chronicles 7, verses 13 and 14. When I shut up heavens so that there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence among my people, if my people, who are called by my name, humble themselves, and pray, and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. We have heard this many times, haven't we, in our church experience and hearing pastors preach. In fact, we even had John Cornball preach from this text when he visited us last, last fall. A very pivotal verse that if we're not taking it honestly and seriously, we might lose perspective and realize that the unchanging God has not changed, and this is how he expects us to find renewal. There is decline that comes out in all of life, but the answer for decline is opportunity for renewal, and it's found right here. Humbling of the heart, removing of pride, and receiving of grace upon grace upon grace. Basically what David heard in response. I want to build you a house no, David, I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to make you thrive, make you successful. So the message from God, if we consider it honestly, earnestly, will bring heaven down. We will have a personal experience where we will find in our souls healing that we desperately need, desperately want. Don't know how to get to that happiness again? How do we find it? We find it by removing pride. And calling upon him who delights to give us grace upon grace. So what we're going to see now in the rest of the book of, of Second Chronicles, you can see all kinds of kings who follow after Solomon. Some who, who's, who are prideful, 
some who are humble. And this is the contrast that you see throughout the whole, whole book. All right, let's go to chapter 12. We're going to continue this lightning tour. Chapter 12, verse 1, we see a king who comes after Solomon. In verse 1, we read of Rehoboam. When the rule of Rehoboam was established and he was strong, he abandoned the law of the Lord and all Israel with him. Rehoboam abandoned God. He followed Solomon, but in his youth he had lost the northern tribes. There had been division in the land. And Judah suffered attack from a foreign power from Egypt to their south-southwest. And in verse 5, we read these words. Then Shemaiah the prophet came to Reboam and to the princes of Judah who had gathered at Jerusalem because of Shishak and said to them, Thus says the Lord, you abandoned me, so I have abandoned you to the hand of Shishak. The word abandon is very, very pivotal. It's theological. Externally, the king and the nation were hurt. They were crushed. But the real punishment from God was that God abandoned them. This is the exact opposite of seeking God. They had abandoned God, so God was no longer seeking them. And decline happens when we stop seeking to know and love God more than the day before. This is how decline starts. I think intuitively we we, we know this, but when it's happening, sometimes our thinking gets foggy and we forget where we were. And we become, self, we become complacent and self-satisfied. And so we see the trajectory of decline here in that there was an abandonment of God. Let's go to the next king. Chapter 13. Chapter 13. We have Abijah, who is a subsequent king, who, who didn't abandon God. Instead, he, he relied upon God. And he began to reign over Judah, and he reigned for three years in Judah, and he raised up an army to, to defend the city, the nation of Israel. And there were there was a, a moment in which the northern tribes came to attack him, and he relied on God profoundly. You see, when, we, when we're in a state of decline, we're, we're relying upon ourselves. He relied upon the Lord God. Verse 10, he stood before uh, the nation, and he said these words. Verse 10, but as for us, the Lord is our God, and we have not forsaken him. We have priests ministering to the Lord who are the sons of Aaron and Levites for their service. They offer to the Lord every morning and every evening burnt offerings and incense and sweet spices and set out the showbread of the table for pure gold and care for the golden lampstand that is the lamps that they may burn every evening. For we keep the charge of the Lord our God, but you have forsaken him. And so he's boldly declaring where their reliance lies. It's not on themselves, it's on God. And I see in this man, he's standing up 
He's waging a holy war because he's a holy person. He is reliant upon the Lord. And note this in verse 18. Thus the men of Israel were subdued at that time, and the men of Judah prevailed because, what was the reason? They relied upon the Lord, the God of their fathers. This is not self-reliance, this is God-reliance. And so we have contrast there. Let's go to the next king, chapter 16. We have another king. His name is Asa. Asa began well, but his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord. Asa began well. He was given a very clear message by a prophet who told him these words. Look at uh, uh, verse 16, verse 2, uh, 2 through 3. No, I'm sorry, chapter 15. My apology. We read these words in verse 2. And he went out to meet Asa, this uh, servant of the Lord, and said to him, Hear me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you while you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. And we, Asa heard this message, and he immediately applied it to his own life. He said, you know what, this is, this is how I take seriously my relationship with the God. I'm going to put away all competing religious emphases in my kingdom. And he began cleaning up some of, the, some of the idol worship that had started to infiltrate his community. He entered into a covenant relationship again with the Lord. He encouraged the whole nation to come back and be faithful to the Lord. Now that was encouraging start, but the problem is Asa had a heart that was not fully devoted. Later on in his life, we see that Asa did not rely upon the Lord to solve his international problems. Take a look, if you will, chapter 16, verse 8 through 9. We have another prophet coming from God to give warning. Later in his life, he had decided that to solve his international problem, he was going to pay another kingdom to come in and intervene. Look at verses 8 and 9. We say, is the, the prophet says this to Asa, Were not the Ethiopians and the Libyans a huge army with very many chariots and horsemen? Yet because you relied upon the Lord, he gave them into your hand. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless towards him. You've done foolishly in this, and from now on you will have wars. Asa was not fully devoted. And you know what he did? He reacted in anger to the messenger who came to bring him these words. Anger. And he developed, because of that anger, the prophet said, this is not going to go well for you, Asa. And lo and behold, he developed a severe foot disease. And what's very significant is that even in getting this foot disease, he didn't then still turn his heart to the Lord. Look at verse 9. It says, for the eyes, uh, verse, excuse me, verse 10, then Asa was angry with the seer and put him in stocks in the prison, for he was enraged with him because of this. 
And Asa inflicted cruelties upon some of the people at that time. And verse, 20, verse 12 says, In the 39th year of his reign, Asa was diseased in his feet, and the disease became severe. Yet even in his disease, he did not seek the Lord, but sought help from physicians. Are you starting to see a pattern here? This is, this is not rocket science, but so often we become so blinded in our thoughtful that we can solve this problem on our own, that we can, we can re, regain happiness, but we don't address the fundamental issue under the surface, which is the pride that's in our hearts. And so we reap the consequences of this. Let's turn to chapter 17. I want you to see another king, Jehoshaphat, who was courageous in the ways of the Lord. Jehoshaphat. Now, that's a name that you should name a child. Actually, that was a very popular name in the 1700s. Lots of Jehoshaphats running around. In chapter 17, verse, uh, verse 6, we see that designation that his heart was courageous in the ways of the Lord. I didn't just make that up. That's what this writer here says. He was courageous. What was it that made him courageous? Well, let's look at verses 3 through 4. It says, the Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he walked in the earlier ways of his father, David. He did not seek the Baals, but sought the God of his father and walked in his commandments and not according to the practices of Israel. That's the northern tribes. What was it? He boldly, he boldly moved his kingdom to follow God's command. He encouraged the true worship of God. In fact, we also see that he made, made it possible so that, that the religious instruction was made possible for his communities that he governed. Um, uh, later on, we see in verse 9, it says, And they taught, that these are Levites that went out into the communities, and they taught in Judah, having the book of the law of the Lord with them. And they went about throughout all the cities of Judah, teaching among the people. He was courageous. He engaged what potentially could be a, a bad political policy that would like potentially disturb the nations or the, the peoples that he was governing. Instead, he sent the Levites out as it were, like the disciples almost two by two, going out and taking the word of God out to his communities. You know, decline happens when we don't actively promote the knowledge of the Lord. When we fail to promote religious instruction, the bales and the spirit of the age take over. I think of the the ministry of CEF and how valuable it is in our community. We need religious instruction going out into our community. We all know very well what has happened to our country over the last 60 years, have we not? We are in a nation of decline, yes, because we have stopped courageously taking the scriptures out to our communities. This is something that we ought to reflect on, but recognize that we can change the direction. Renewal can come. There are four chapters in chapter 17 to 20, and I'm not going to go through them all, but I want to just point out another instance in which Jehoshaphat was courageous for the Lord. Chapter 20. Chapter 20. Chapter 20. 
There is an army from the south that's coming up, and it looks overwhelming. It looks like a massive sea of people from the distance, and the watchtowers are giving early warning. And Jehoshaphat is notified that there's imminent danger, imminent, imminent risk. And so what he does is he goes and he calls all of the city together to stand before the temple. And in front of the temple, he's speaking to God, but in the hearing of the people, he says these words. He says, Oh, our God, will you not execute judgment upon these people? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. That's not a great political strategy, is it? But it's the strategy that always works when we humble ourselves and admit that we don't know how we're going to solve the problems that are coming our way, that our eyes are turned to the Lord. That's the place where, where renewal can take place. And so they went out to battle the next day, and what did they discover? That some other country from the south ambushed the group that was coming, and they killed each other. God delivered them, remarkably. Let's go to another king, Uzziah, chapter 26, please. I am skipping over a number, obviously, of other kings. Uzziah is described in chapter 26, and he is uh, a young person, 16, when he's brought to the leadership of this, the nation. And in verse 3 through 5, we see that he set his heart early to do what was right in the Lord's eyes. In verse 3, we read these words, Uzziah was 16 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Jechaliah of Jerusalem, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that his father Amaziah had done. He set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God, and as long as he sought the Lord... God made him to prosper. And he prospered as long as he sought the fear of the Lord. You might remember that Uzziah was the king during the, reign, during the prophetic ministry of Isaiah. Isaiah was the prophet in his time. Uzziah was a very astute king. He was very innovative. He developed technology that was cutting edge in those days. He had, he had armor. He had armor, bronze armor that his soldiers could wear that was cutting edge. In fact, he even built catapults on the city walls, not something that other nations even thought to do, but he did it. And his fame went throughout all the land, and we read this in chapter 26, verse 15. We read these words. His fame spread far, for he was marvelously helped till he was strong. But when he was strong, 
he grew proud to his destruction. And you know what happened? In his pride, he forgot his place, and he went into the temple and sought to burn incense, which was prohibited for him to do. It was the priest's role to go in and burn incense. Uzziah was confronted by 80 armed guards and the high priest and said, you've outdone yourself, you're way outside of your position. And he grew angry and he had a censer in his hand with incense and he raised it up and as he raised it up, leprosy broke out upon him. And he was a leper for the rest of his life. Uzziah prospered as long as he sought the Lord. Let's go to Hezekiah and Manasseh now. I'm skipping over Jotham and Ahaz, but Hezekiah and Manasseh. Now, we might know the story of Hezekiah and the death of all of the, all of the Assyrians who surrounded the city and the death angel that came out night, at night. Hezekiah laid before the, in the temple, and he laid flat, and he prayed to the Lord, and there was a great deliverance. But after the deliverance, Hezekiah grew proud. He had a visiting group of Babylonians come, and they congratulated him on his successes. And in response to this, this group of officials who came, you know what he did? He showed them everything in the city. He even showed them the cisterns and the water tracks that let water into the city. Isaiah came to him and said, what in the world did you just do? He just showed Babylon how that they would enter into the city and take it over in another generation. In his pride, he destroyed his country. And Hezekiah became proud. And this is, I believe, the incident that was discussed. And if you look at chapter 32, chapter 32, verse 25 to 26, we read these words. In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death, and he prayed to the Lord and answered him and gave him a sign. But Hezekiah did not make return according to the benefit done to him, and for his heart was proud. Therefore, wrath came upon him in Judah and Jerusalem, but Hezekiah humbled himself for the pride of his heart, both he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of the Lord did not come upon them in the days of Hezekiah. The wrath got deferred. He humbled himself. The wrath would come underneath of his son, Manasseh. His son Manasseh came after him and made previous wicked kings look like children. He erected altars himself. He worshipped the zodiac. He burned his own sons on the altar he set up an idol in the very house of God. And the Babylonians who had seen the cistern and how to get into the city, they came in his day and they took him captive and they drug him in chains all the way back to Babylon. But while he was in Babylon, like his father, his pride was taken away. He humbled himself and he prayed to God. Chapter 33, verse 13 we read this word. Chapter 33, 
verse 13. And he prayed to him, and God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. And then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. See, the, the pattern is, is pretty well established here, isn't it? I'm going to go to one more, and then it'll take us to the end of the book. I want you to turn over to chapter 34. I want you to see Josiah. Josiah tried to control world history. Josiah was eight years old. He, he, he started well. He did that which was right in the eyes of God. He, he gradually cleaned up all the idol worship that his father Manasseh had established in the land. He cleaned up the temple. And in the temple, you might remember that a, a copy of the Law of Moses was found. You might remember some of those details. And it was brought to the high priest to be read. And when they heard the words, they were overwhelmed by the thought that they were going to be wiped out for all of their sins that they had committed. They took the scriptures to Josiah. They went to a prophet to see if these things would actually be the case. And this is what the response was. Let's look at chapter 34, verse 26. Chapter 34, verse 26, we read these words. But to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire the Lord, thus shall you say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard, because your heart was tender, and you humbled yourself before God when you heard his words against this place and its inhabitants, and you have humbled yourself before me and have torn your clothes and wept before me, I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered in your grave to peace. This was the hope and opportunity for him as he humbled himself. But Josiah, Josiah didn't stay humble. Josiah tried to intervene in world politics. He intervened between Egypt and Babylon, thinking perhaps maybe he would put off the coming judgment from Babylon. He intervened and Egypt was coming up through his kingdom and moving towards Babylon to attack. And Josiah sent out his own armies, and he went with the armies to meet Egypt in battle. Perhaps thinking he would create an ally with Babylon and perhaps even save his own country. But in doing this, the king of Egypt sent word back to him, What are you doing? Why are you involving yourself in something that doesn't affect you? And the writer of Chronicles lets us know that this actually was a message from the Lord, and Josiah didn't respond to it, and while he was in battle, he was killed. Pride. Thinking that we know what is best destroys us. It causes us to lose what we're trying to save. His own son reigned for three months, and then Egypt came and removed him from the throne. And the decline just keeps going faster and faster at that point, and now we're in chapter 36, we're at the end of the book. And now we can ask these questions with answers. What causes decline? It's pride. But what triggers renewal? It's humility. It's humility. Do you realize 
how dangerous it is to come to church and to hear the word of God? It's dangerous. Verse 14 and following says this, chapter 36. All the officers and priests and the people likewise were exceedingly unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations. And they polluted the house of the Lord that they had made holy in Jerusalem. The Lord, the God of our fathers, sent persistently to them by messengers, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. When we despise the word of the Lord or turn away from those who are trying to communicate truth to us, we are not wise. We're evidencing a hard heart and pride. Did you know that to be at the end of your rope is the best place to be? It's the best place to be. And why might that be? Because then pride is gone. I remember a conversation when I was working with a, at that time it was a, a young lady. She knew I was studying to go into ministry. And she said, you know, I, I know, I know, yeah, my uncle, my uncle actually became a Christian. I, I remember that. But you know what? Oh, he was at the end of his rope. And I wish I had had more, you know, could have this life experience now and respond. But I should have responded, yes, that's the best place to be. In fact, if you're not at the end of your rope, you won't be able to hear. You won't be able to hear God calling. When you're tired of your self-rule, you're ready to respond to the rule of God. One Puritan put it this way, until sin be bitter... Christ will not be sweet. Renewal comes when pride is put away so that we can enjoy Christ's grace again. When the gospel message becomes sweet to us, we know that we are experiencing the immediate presence of Christ. Like being separated from one's spouse and coming home again and finding joy. Renewal comes when pride is put away. That's when we enjoy Christ's grace again. So how has it been for you? Has not the Lord Jesus Christ at times been present with you? Has he not given you a clear manifestation of his love and his glory? Has he not spoken tenderly to your heart? When, when was the last time that that had been the case for you? 
if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray, seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. I invite you, I invite you to to humble yourself and find that Christ is sweet. I invite you to find joy again in your relationship with him. Let's pray.